Well, hey there. How are you, you fabulous interior design professional? Welcome to Business of Design, episode 301. And if you think I'm out of gas, you are so wrong. I'm not sure if it's possible to have a favorite episode when you've done 301 of them. But I will tell you that this episode is just spectacular, in my humble opinion. <laughs> You're all like rolling your eyes right now. Yeah. When have we ever seen your humble opinion, Kimberly? Anyway, this is truly such an important episode. And I loved every minute of the conversation I had with Janine Hayes and Brian Mason, authors of a second book, their second book called Afro Chic. I received a copy of this book. It came to my desk. The color of the book caught my eye immediately. It's bright orange. It's glorious orange. It's going to look so good on a coffee table. And then the title of the book caught my eye, Afro Chic. So some assumptions made. Okay, this is going to be a book about black interior designers or featuring the homes of black interior designers. And that's a good thing. And I was eager to look at it. But every assumption flew out the window as I began to flip the pages because what this really is, is an extraordinary book that is a celebration of color and exuberance and storytelling. And so beyond the stunning visuals, which there are so many beyond that, there is also this thread of a beautifully narrated history account of Black home ownership and therefore the Black design experience. After reading it cover to cover, which is absolutely not something I've ever done. I feel like my mind just expanded three sizes. It's perfect time for this visual, right? We just finished Thanksgiving and Christmas is on the way. And every year we watch The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. I forced my children to sit in the sofa and watch The Grinch Who Stole Christmas and Charlie Brown's Christmas with me. So that moment where the Grinch's heart grows three sizes, that's how I feel my mind opened up after reading the book and then being able to have a conversation with the authors. I've never read a design book cover to cover before. I couldn't put it down. I learned things I never knew, but this is not really an eat your vegetables episode. You know, I talk about those episodes where we are going to do some math and you really have to concentrate. The story will just carry you along. So that's lovely. And of course, you're going to find so many things that you relate to and so many ways this is going to touch you. And maybe if you're like me, you're going to come away thinking, I need to step it up a little in terms of the amount of joy I put into rooms, the amount of fantastic artwork and color and exuberance is the word I keep thinking of, then this book is also for you. Anyway, I don't know if you've ever read a design book cover to cover. I typically just kind of look at the pictures, of course, and then I scan the text for information I want. Where's that chandelier from? I wonder what sort of marble that is. Is that a porcelain on the kitchen counters? I can't tell, right? I sometimes will look for the designer's name, where they're from, but really most of the time, I can't be bothered to read the text. And this really was exceptional in that sense. And you're going to hear from Janine and Brian shortly. Make sure you follow them on Instagram. And first, let me tell you how you can get the book, Afro Chic. In fact, you know what? I'm going to tell you how you can get the book for free. You can buy it through afrochic.com or go to businessofdesign.com. The link is there. Or even better, 
because I know you care about value. Sign up now for Business of Design Elite Retreat Charleston, and we're going to give you a copy. I got so excited talking to Janine and Brian. I'm like, I'm going to buy copies for everybody. So we did. We made a big purchase. We have the books waiting for us in Santa Monica, and we will send you your very own copy. I was going to bring them to Charleston, but I thought maybe you don't need that extra weight in your luggage. So if you need more incentive to sign up for Business of Design Elite Retreat, There it is. You're going to get your very own copy of Afro Chic. And if that's not in the cards for you this year, you've got some pressing event that's keeping you from us in Charleston and you want to buy the book, please, I hope you will. It's absolutely stunning from cover to cover. We have a great show for you. And as always, here to kick things off, Miss Cheryl Horn. Hey, Kimberly. I think the most important date to be aware of right now as we head into December this week is the deadline for early bird pricing for the Business of Design Elite Retreat Charleston. So up until December 15th, you're going to save $300. You're also only going to be asked for a 50% deposit to get your ticket now, and the balance will be due in February. So it's really the time to get in on it. Members, of course, save an additional $500 on their ticket. So now is the time to join, become a member, Join us for the Business of Design Elite Retreat. Really good holiday gift uh, for your business or for a loved one to give uh, to you. If you don't need something else, you know, put this on your list this year because it really is a game changer for your business and we would love for you to join us. So complete details are on the website. Please check it out before December 15th. Let me know if you have any questions. And of course, we do have other events on our calendar, and we would also love for you to join us uh, in Australia. If you're really up for travel or if you're already in Australia, please join us for uh, a two-day intensive seminar for the BOD 15 hosted by Boyd Blue in Sydney. That's happening March 6th and 7th. Registration is open. Please be sure to check that out as well. Uh, Also coming up uh, in December, uh, December 14th, we've got BOD Live, and we're going to be joined by uh, Sierra Collins, who's going to take the lead on that one, and she was recently on the podcast talking about everything you need to have in place before you set goals. So she works uh, very closely with our boss group, and we wanted to make her available to the rest of our members. So please join us for that please check out the website for BOD Live. We have sort of assigned a little bit of homework before you join us for that one, but we're going to be talking about goal setting and what you need to have in place in order to achieve those goals. And we're going to have more details, but we're also uh, going back to Las Vegas uh, market. Kimberly's going to be speaking there on January 30th. If you're headed to Las Vegas market in January, uh, reach out and let us know. We would love to see you there. But details for all of this and more is on the website, businessofdesign.com. And as always, I'm available to answer any questions you have. Uh, Reach out to me, Cheryl, at businessofdesign.com. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Cheryl. And thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Gosh, 301 episodes and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Business of Design with your advocate in chief, Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the world's best business training for interior design professionals, like you. The systems, strategies, and protocols we teach 
will allow you to consistently satisfy clients, increase your profitability, and run your projects like a boss. And they've been field tested by thousands of design professionals in more than 50 countries. Join today and you'll have immediate access to Business of Design's 15-step project management strategy, an exact blueprint for running your design projects from consultation to 100% completion. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results, led by a successful, profitable, working interior designer. It's time to create the business you dreamed of when you first started out. Don't do this alone. Go to businessofdesign.com now and become a member. Now, we're going to launch into this episode, but you're going to hear a conversation already in motion. Usually when you sign up to be a guest on the podcast, I'll ask you something like, what did you have for breakfast while I'm checking your sound levels? And so Brian is telling me what he has for breakfast, which is baked apples, and I'm getting the recipe, which is very simple. And I've since tried it. And oh my gosh, it is so good. I added them to my Greek yogurt and it's kind of changing my life in the morning as the days are cooler. It's so much nicer than cold granola in your Greek yogurt. So anyway, enjoy the recipe off the top of the show. And thanks again. We're really glad you're here. Those are delicious. Yeah, it's kind of like an apple pie, like the inside of an apple pie without any of the external stuff that is what you don't want. <laughs> well, so do you add, did you add cinnamon or nutmeg or how does it, do you do, what, how do you round it out? No, nope, just apples and olive oil in an oven. That's really all you need. And it's just, you know, they 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 get plenty sweet, you know. They, sometimes they're, you know, you get a little crisp on them depending on how you do it. Or they get very, uh, it becomes very much like the consistency of, of the pie filling if you, uh, you know, leave them in there long enough. And, yeah, you don't really need to do anything else. Just olive oil, apples, pan and oven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. I, I, I'm going to let the tape roll on that because I think, uh, you know, it's that time of year. Everybody will decide that that's a really good thing to try. Are you guys in generally <laughs> like good, healthy eaters? Yes. Now, yeah. nowadays. No. Yeah. We, I, I have long COVID, so I've been sick with it for about two and a half years yeah. at this point. So being healthy is, is, is not a choice anymore. It's a must. Yeah. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. I actually have another friend who has long COVID, and it's really a challenge. Um, wow. So anyway, you wouldn't know it from looking at these two. They absolutely look like you know the two perfect specimens who take good care of themselves. So there you go. It's too oh, bad it's not. A, it's too bad it's not on TV. This this uh, in that regard. I, I was very excited to interview uh, you, Janine Hayes and Brian Mason. I received a copy of the book Afro Chic. I know it's not your first book, but I was if I had not seen the cover of the book and just opened the book, I would have been greeted by just an abundance of color and an abundance of just joyful, exuberant, sometimes whimsical artwork that I think is really absent from a lot of mainstream um, publications that cover interior design. Is that a fair, would you say that's a fair thing to say? Mm. Yeah, I think that we've, we've, we've definitely heard that. And, you know, people are really excited about the spaces that they see in the book. Um, I definitely think that, yes, in a lot of sort of mainstream home decor magazines that people visit, um, there has been sort of a lack of color, a lack of art 
present in a lot of those interiors. And that comes down to, particularly in the U.S., there's a feeling within the industry that people are afraid of color or afraid of um, really expressing themselves in their interior spaces. But we're really happy that we found, you know, uh, this home, this book features 16 homes and they're all beautiful and authentic and really speak to the personalities of these 16 different families that are featured. And um, for us, it's always exciting to identify gorgeous spaces and spaces that really reflect the people who live within them. Yeah, um, you're not going to have a book with Paul Supat, who's an amazing Brooklyn artist, or John Goodman, who's this fantastic Bronx, New York event designer, and not see whimsical art, you know, everywhere you look. And you're not going to have, you know, uh, Alexander Alexander Smalls or or Stacey Blake and not see color everywhere. Um, but one of the things that was important to us was also showing uh, the diversity of design that goes on in Black homes. So. You have you know, that that fear of color is is not there. An embrace of art absolutely is there uh, because art is a very specific, it's a very open way of making a statement. You can be you can be literal with your art in ways that you may be more figurative or you know, as you said, more whimsical with your color, with your pattern, things like that. There are things you can say specifically with your art, um, but at the same time, there are there there's such a diversity of the homes. In the way that we're we're basically making the statement on on black design, African American design, that it defies categorization by something as simple as color palette or furniture era or something like that. The the things that that market are are deeper and they're more about feel than they are about necessarily the the pieces that go into making up a space. And so that's the through line that you find in in the homes that we have. So we have some that are incredibly colorful. We have some that are very whimsical. We have some that are actually this this really cool kind of 70s vibe and some that are are very much, um, you know, this amazing uh, North Carolina ranch of Rachel Rogers uh, that, that, you know, (laughs) you know, we we look at people who are living in, in New York or the Bronx or in L.A. and she's in North Carolina on a ranch with horses. So one of the things that was always important about this was to show the diversity of the black experience, because it tends to, as you talk about popular culture and, and, and its kind of statements on design, statements on black culture in popular culture can be very narrow. And what we're trying to show is that the reality is very different. In a twist of what is typical for me, I read this book cover to cover because it's not just about the beautiful pictures. I know you mentioned, for example, Paul Supat, and he talks about growing up with his grandmother and she taught him how to see and how to sit at the table. And he creates these fanciful flowers that remind him of a dressing table that she had. And uh, there's this story of Shauna, I I think it's Friedman, who you mentioned a literal, a literal translation of artwork. She she builds or she creates a cotton plant in a salon, it looks like, and she's sitting beside it. So it's, a, it's not just that it's a feast for the eyes, but it's a, it's a history book as well. Yeah. Um, and that was always the, well, first off, thank you so much, because the most, 
the 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 greatest compliment that you can get for any book, I feel, but especially for a design book, is that someone read it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever read a design book. I'm honestly, I truly, I read the captions like everybody does, but I started on page one, and I couldn't put it down. So yeah, uh, I, well, I can't. <laughs> Yeah, because we we've heard that like from from the beginning, and even even with our first book with Remix, the 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 conversation was always who's going to read this, and like you we want to put so many words in to what is is largely considered to be a picture book, and we always said, well, no, there's a there's a story to be told here, there's a statement to be made, there's something that needs to be said, and honestly, our take on design has always been, you know, we say that design is more than pretty things arranged skillfully in a room. You know, we look at it as uh, a cultural artifact. And because it's a cultural artifact, it is a lens that can be looked through and can be read back into the culture that created it. It's social, it's historical, it's political processes even. And so that's the the, the line that we've tried to take, not only with, with this book, but with everything that we do as Afro-Chic. And because of that, we were saying, well, let's let's create a design book that's actually meant to be read because there's a story here that has to be told. One reason why it was important to tell this story was simply on the basis of Black representation. Um, it was never going to be enough for us to do a book that simply said, here are 16 Black people who have nice homes. Because there, at, at, at best, it would just kind of be one more design book. At worst, it would actually become part of the problem because people would look at it and say, look, Black people are doing fine. Homes are great. And there's nothing else to be said about it. And that's clearly not the case. So we needed to be able to, to tell the story. And so when we talk about, you know, Paul Supat and growing up with his grandmother, we talk about uh, Shauna Freeman and uh, that cotton tree and, and, and really looking again, talking about the diversity of the black experience. You know, we tend to think that we have a, a, a solid line on what the relationship between black people and cotton is in American history. And what we're showing with the story is even that has layers and it has you know, not even divergences, but there's there's a diversity of that experience. So what was important to us in looking at this was to look at each person's story of home is, is how we refer to it. And not really just saying, OK, tell us about your house or give us your house tour. We actually refer to them as home portraits because we're asking people not only what is it that you have in your house, but how did your concept of home develop over the course of your life? What's the first home that you remember? And how did every other home that you've had since then, you know, contribute to that? So the, the stories that we have were actually, you know, much longer. And so there was a lot of editing because there were so many amazing parts of the story that had to go into it. But being able to kind of tell that story for each individual person and then weave it into what we call the larger African-American journey to home, that that story that starts for most, they, it, it starts before the Civil War and emancipation, but for, for the great majority of African-Americans begins at the point of emancipation and which continues to this very moment in the COVID-19 and now the RSV and monkeypox and however many other viral crises we can keep on to it, um, home continues to be a question and it continues to be a battle and continues for a lot of us to be a struggle. And so it's important to, to weave all of that together to understand what this experience actually is. Mm. I really um, felt that I I had an obligation to read the book, um, but it it's it just is so much more than I ever expected. I did learn things, 
but I felt things and I could relate to so many of the stories. In the introduction, you guys say that the black family home is a vibe. What does that mean? You know, it's the feeling. It's the soul. It's it's when you walk into any of these spaces. And I will say that some of the, the homes that we know that some of the folks, we've been in their homes. And, you know, when you go in, you you feel who they are within that space because they are so authentic. Um, I love the stories, too. I think that that's been something that's, you know, we almost treat them as little sort of ethnographies, while at the same time in sort of the breakout journey homes, you get this historical narrative. Um, But what was interesting for us was talking to people about those first memories of home and actually realizing, like, for all of us, that's where it begins. A lot of what we learn as children really does come into how we experience or design or develop our spaces as adults. And so, you know, Paul with the flowers and and his grandmother making those trinkets, I remember when we were interviewing him and we were like, well, Paul, this is, this is your house. Like you're just, mm-hmm. you're doing that. And he was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And we're like, yeah, like you're carrying your grandmother with you and those things you learn. John Goodman, another person who talked a lot about his grandparents, we had many people talk about their grandparents and that relationship and the impact it had on them and going to the flea markets with his grandmother. And still he's doing that, doing that behavior of going to the flea markets and finding things. And so um, I think there is a lot that is relatable. There's a lot that we don't think about when we think of home, you know, a lot of times, like you said, sort of mainstream industry home is about buying certain products, you know, if you want a luxury look or a specific type of look. And these homes aren't about the look at all. It really is about carrying this history forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, and I think we all have that. It's it's the Black family home, but I think that every one of us has, you know, cultural artifacts that we do bring with us. And what we hope this book does for people is helps them to embrace that in a, in a way that, you know, it isn't about having all the right pieces. It's about having the pieces that speak to you and that ultimately make you feel comfortable and happy and safe in the environment that you call home. And just kind of broadening our, our perspective on what design is and what it does. I mean, so part of it is you know, acknowledging that the, in the history of design that from the beginning it was considered a luxury. You know, it was something that the wealthy originally basically did for each other and then kind of moving on from that. But it was always about, you know, status. You know, the aesthetic was basically a statement of status. What can you afford? And, you know, what we're what we're saying here is that we can broaden that and say that, you know, it's not just what can you afford, but also it's a statement of who you are. Sometimes, as Jeanine said, that's carrying that history what what made you, what formed you forward, it always is on some level. In some points, it's a big divergence from that. So, you know, for something like uh, Chris Glass, who's actually living in Germany and has this amazing space that actually just is, is you know, his his roots are in Atlanta. You can find pieces of that in there. But, you know, he's created this this beautifully international aesthetic for himself. And and talking about how he basically he found himself in the process of creating that aesthetic. So for all the other things that he had done, he said, this is the thing that I finally feel like is mine. And that and through that, he's able to better define, better understand who he's been all along. 
So there's a lot that design can do in that way. And so, I mean, to the extent that we're talking about things that you were able to read and not only learn from, but also connect with. And it's because, you know, design is a, is a, we, we, we always, we say this a lot too. Design is an intensely human endeavor because we're the only ones that do it. There are other animals on this planet who build habitats. There are others who gather things to make nests out of or burrows or what have you, but we are the only ones who create things specifically to put into a place, to create an aesthetic, to tell a story, to convey an idea, to create a sense of comfort for ourselves. And because of that, it, it, one of the reasons why it works so well as a lens is because you can see that the things that you can connect to in someone's design story are very much the things that you can connect to in their overall story, because every human story is a human story. And every American story is an American story. So there, there would have to be perforce those things that you would recognize, those things that you would connect with, because despite all of the imaginary divisions that we place between each other, we all need the same things. And so the, the, the circumstances may vary based on how the rest of the world sort of conspires to dictate how you have to go about providing for those needs or the, the intensity of one need versus another. You know, for example, we talk about how uh, for every black homeowner, for every homeowner that we interviewed, we asked them, what does the black family home mean to you? And the first thing everyone said was safety. Now, when we talk to people outside of our community, one of the first things we hear is status. We hear home means I made it home, you know, American dream, all these other things. But for black homeowners who live in a country where life has never been safe for black people, the major drive of home is to say, if I make it back here <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm safe with the knowledge that that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily physically safe. Because we know most recently, Breonna Taylor, like it doesn't mean that you're necessarily safe in your home from the, the world out there. And we're not talking about random crime or whatever. We're talking about just like the nature of the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so, but that feeling of safety, that need for safety, as well as control, visibility, celebration, memory, those elements that we talk to that make up that field that Janine referenced, or at least serve as the basis for that field that she referenced. Those things always have to be there. I found myself continually, continually relating to the stories and putting myself in the shoes and comparing things and saying, well, me too, me too. And then I had to remind myself that, yeah, that's a lot of, there are so many similarities, but then there's also the reality that there were so many roadblocks put up for black people that were never put up for people who have my skin color. And I was shocked to see, I don't remember what page it was on. I can't even remember what it was called, but there was actually a, it was something like a race writer in a deed that's mm -hmm. current in Barista, California or something like that. Tell, tell me about that. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. shocked. Yeah, I think that, you know, we definitely talk about the history of, like you said, different barriers that are constantly put up for Black people to obtain home ownership. And so um, Tracy and Amir, who live in California, um, still have that race covenant in their deed. Um, and race covenants were, you know, very popular where, um, you know, a white person could write in um, who could be the next owner 
of the the land or of the property um, and would write in like basically either something like, you know, this could only go to another white person or a black person was excluded from being able to be sold the property. And so I think a lot of Americans probably don't really have an understanding of that history and um, that the Fair Housing Act is, is why the Fair Housing Act was enacted in 1968 to basically deal with those types of um, you know, barriers for black home ownership. Um, but yet, yeah, absolutely. It's still experienced today, not necessarily something as overt as a race covenant. Although, like you said, in their chain and in, in their chain of title, basically for their home, that's still there. You can't take it out. Um, but it's illegal, of course, to, to follow that. Um, but still we face barriers and some of the folks in the book, talked about the the barriers that they faced in in trying to uh, buy homes today. And it's more, um, I guess, what you would call like sort of passive racism today, where you might go into a bank and you are constantly getting holdups with your paperwork, or the bank just doesn't want to take you on as a client um, in terms of a mortgage. And you're not really sure what's going on, but um, you know we had that experience ourselves. And um, it was actually uh, interesting as we moved during the pandemic, like so many other people. And when we would talk to our friends who were white, we were like, well, this is happening to us. And are you guys getting the same experience? And they were like, no, what are you talking about? What, what is this other paper they're telling you about? What are these things? Um, and it actually came to a point where um, we had, we started calling family members and being like, what's, you know, something's going on here. And then our parents and siblings, older siblings sitting down and going, oh, yeah, that happened to us. Or, you know, that's sort of things that we experience. Um, and we just realized that we were in a, a situation that the bank was really a, a particular person at our bank was hindering our, our loan from coming through. Um, and we actually had to write a letter to the president of the bank and basically outline everything we had done. We had all our paperwork together. Everything was great. And that this one particular person was holding it up. The day after we wrote that letter and sent it, um, we got our closing date finally after months, months of, yeah. of it being pushed. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, things like race covenants were sort of the old way, but still black people experience a lot of uh, barriers or things like predatory lending, things that will make it harder for us to keep a home or easier for us to lose a home. Um, and that's why Brian and I always like to say like every black home is a miracle because what you have to go through to get it, um, it takes a lot. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's important. One of the reasons why we we did so much writing in the book was to be able to, to show that context and give that history to say that things like uh, redlining, race covenants, um, the development of the early development of the suburbs and those communities like uh, Levitt, the, the many Levitt towns that, you know, openly excluded had an charge that you cannot have black people here um, were ways of, of keeping black people out. Whereas things like the the uh, interstate highway program and uh, urban renewal became ways of attacking communities that already existed and wiping them out. Um, but then at the same time, you also have things, as you said, like predatory lending, um, the continuance of redlining, albeit in in less overt, less official ways. Um, but we all know that it's something that still goes on. When Anytime we talk about a food desert, uh, a health desert, which has become more of a focus now during uh, COVID, 
Uh, when we talk about environmental justice and how that impacts the health of, you know, why black children have higher rates of asthma, why you have higher levels of diabetes, the impacts that these things have, um, they all go back to the same root and they're just different ways of doing the same thing. Um, it, but what we talk about, one of the things we talk about in the book is overlapping spheres of oppression. And one of the things that they do is to give a, lot, a kind of plausible deniability to each other. You know, no one thinks much about, you know, you know, bad streets or uh, a lack of services or uh, a high you know, level of diabetes in a black neighborhood because that's just what black neighborhoods have. And because we do that, we, we ignore that the people have been pushed in these areas. We overlook things like the the GI Bill and the, the role that it played in building the American middle class, but also the very lopsided way in which it was distributed. And to ensure that it didn't build a black middle class, how predatory lending and, and the, the crash that it caused in, in 08 was specifically aimed at people of color and how as quickly as white American households recovered, by the time COVID hit, black American households were still in the so-called process of recovery, still way down in, you know, economically dealing with the fallout of what had happened in 08. So one of the things that's important is always looking at that these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, um, we're, we're always going at what we refer to as common knowledge. This, this, the things that you don't know, but you just know that you haven't, you haven't done, you haven't learned about, you haven't been educated on, but you just know that there are certain things that, that are the way that they are. And we're, we're, we're constantly in this book trying to paint the picture through this idea of home that nothing in the society comes from nothing. You know, there are specific you know, programs, agendas, there are things that are specifically done to create a certain set of outcomes. And so we talk about something like the Homesteading Act and the amount of land that was just given away. And a lot of that land was actually taken from Black and Native American landowners and given away to people, you know. So things like that, that are, that are it's it's not happenstance. Right. <laughs> they, they just doesn't occur. And so again, we're kind of relating that back to the idea of design. We always, we were constantly say, I know we say things we always say, but we say these things a lot, is that, um, you know, societies are designed in a way that is not entirely unlike a room. You know, uh, you have the things that you put in it, the things that you're trying to create, a certain way that you want to be able to live in your space, uh, things that you change when you grow tired of them, things that don't work and that you you rearrange. And the point is that the the world that we live in is not one that just happened by accident. It's not one that was just given to us. It's one that we continually control and create and make and remake. So to the extent where there are winners or losers, then we have to always see that those things are by design, but they don't have to be. So like anything else in a room, you can change those aspects. There's, There's nothing that says that Black people have to live in areas where there is no food other than fast food, which is and there's nothing that says the fast food necessarily has to be designed to kill you. <laughs> but, you know, so all of these things, like these are all things, these are all the outcomes of choices that we make. And if, when we realize that, we start to realize how much we have the ability to change that. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for anybody listening, but I can tell you 12, maybe 12 years ago, if, if you had said all these things, I would have been incredulous. 
Like, <laughs> what? 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 No. And now I'm not even remotely surprised. I just realized that I have this education growing up in uh, Los Angeles, uh, an education that has huge Swiss cheese holes in it around so many issues. And there's just so much more to learn. And one of the things that struck me in the very beginning of the book, I'm going to read this. It says, for our ancestors who started this journey, those who are on it with us now and everyone who will see it through. Tell me what that means. Who, tell me who, who will help you see this through. Hmm. I mean, definitely, you know, that dedicating the book, of course, to everyone who came before, who, you know, all of the people, our our ancestors were enslaved. And so, um, you know, the people who probably in their wildest dreams, you know, maybe they did dream that there would one day be an us. Um, I, I can only think that they did. That's how they kept going. And so we absolutely thank them for everything they did so that there could be an us. Um, But I think that also we always want to look forward. You know, this is, you know, any any um, group that is dealing with oppression um, always has to look towards the future because you're you're on a marathon run. (laughs) So, you know, it's not going to be like you're going to see the end of this in your lifetime. But, you know, the hope is that the next generation, you know, I I hope our nieces and nephews are little now, but I hope one day that they'll actually look at this book that their auntie and uncle, you know, made and be like, oh, it's kind of (laughs) cool. And and also really understand that there's a responsibility that they have um, to keep pushing the story forward, to keep pushing the culture forward in whatever way that they decide to. Um, and we have hope that, you know, one day in the future, it won't be, you know, we won't live with facts like that, you know, today there are less black homeowners today in our generation than there were when our, our parents were first going to buy homes. Um, and I think some of those statistics are in the book. We do. We mentioned that there's, um, you know, at the point we're writing the book, the rate of homeownership among African-Americans was lower than it was at the point of the signing of the Fair Housing Act. And it, again, a lot of that is, and we, we talk about that, the rates of disparity with homeownership and the way in which that ties into everything from the wealth gap to the inheritance gap. And again, pointing that back at, as you mentioned, this idea is this common knowledge that, no, that's not, it can't be that. But no, the 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 wealth gap between the ratio of wealth between the average black household and the average white household is 10 to one. So $17,000 to $171,000. And a part of that is that, that wage gap. A part of it is that inheritance gap, but a big part of the inheritance gap is the ability to pass on home, the ability to, to finance children, to build and buy new homes. Um, and it results in a very different world for people who occupy the same nation. Um, so all of that kind of like fits in together and we wanted, it was, it was vitally important to be able to show that history, to be able to, to, to show that there, there are reasons for this. When we talk about the, the black family home as a missing character from American history, there's a reason for it so that, you know, we don't pay attention to the fact that, you know, we, we quote some studies in there that say that it's actually financially uh, more advantageous to be a white single high school dropout than it is to be a double income black family with two college graduates. 
because of these these the differences and these disparities. And you can't we we have to omit that history. We have to do what we call the hard work of forgetting. Because you can't know these things and still believe that you live in a meritocracy. Because those those two facts are incompatible. Mm-hmm. Or that, that fact and that belief are incompatible. You can't continue to believe in the idea of, of bootstrapping and self-reliance when you realize that statistically, when you actually look at what's happening, the the individual actions of 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 any one black person can't do anything to change the overall, you know, outcome, the overall set of circumstances that black people, black homeowners we're talking about specifically, you know, live in and endure in this country. It's it's not about that. It's not about whether one person goes to school or whether one person, you know, chooses to get married or, or any of the things that we'll typically say when, when it comes up, well, why are things harder for black people? And go, oh, well, it's the decisions they make, but it isn't. And so... It becomes it's it's there's a there's an outcome there's a function to this to this omission and so the thing that I find most uh, what, what interests me the most about that dedication is you know all those who will see it through because that's where the question is and so the 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 idea the the instinctive understanding of it is you know the future generations of black people who will continue this journey on. And and that is certainly the core of it, but the question is who else is going to join us, you know? And one of the things that is important to note and that we try to bring out in this is the idea that look, if every form of racism that exists in this country ultimately serves to benefit the same group, then to what extent are they really different? And if every form of racism that exists in this country benefits that one group, then that one group is cast in its role, no less than anyone else. So when you talk about the the gaps in your education, the things that you didn't learn, the things that you weren't taught, those things, again, going back to our earlier point, are by design. There are things that you're not supposed to know because you knowing them would pose a threat to the way that things are currently, the way that, you know, we're supposed to believe that they just have to be. And so you start to realize that not only is this is this this framework not true? But then also, you've been forced into it as well. And you have to start to ask yourself, well, people outside of our community have to start to ask themselves, what does it require of them? Even if the box that you're forced into is, is labeled winners, <laughs> what does it cost? You know, what does it cost when you you when there are things that you're not allowed to know about your own history? So these are things that um it's important to kind of be able to pull all of these things together so that the idea is. All of those who will see it through will not be just us because we live in a country where we tend to put the onus of oppression on those who are victimized by it. The same way, you know, black people are responsible for talking about racism. You know, uh, people who are sufferers of domestic violence are, are, are the ones responsible for talking about domestic violence. And it, it doesn't make sense if, if the, the person that you're making responsible for the problem is not the originator of the issue. Mm-hmm. So being able to kind of... Uh, change that that perspective and that outcome and, and bring that together and say, look, this is a problem that we all face. And so we all have to fix it together is hopefully the conversation we're starting. And I love that that you read it and that you were learning from it. And I think that 
that's another important thing. I mean, you know, it's a book that has a different lens on design. And also it does have a bibliography in it mm -hmm. as well at the end so that people can actually go and be able to inform themselves and dig deeper. And there's a lot of studies in there that really do look at things like what Brian was mentioning, inheritance gaps, wealth gaps, home ownership gaps, and a lot of the historic things that we talk about. Well, it's just a beautiful book, but there's a lot more. I've, I've been on AfroChic.com. Um, I see that there's, you know, other media. There's a shop. There are things you can buy, beautiful light fixtures and pillows and all kinds of things. So everybody, please support this wonderful group. What's coming up for you guys? What what are you, what's cooking these days? <laughs> I think right now we're actually relaxing and just ready for, for this second book, you know, to, to be out um, and um, just going to kind of enjoy the, the end of the year. We'll be doing a couple of um, uh, like pop-up events um, in, in New York where we live and then hopefully some things next year as well. So uh, we definitely let, you know, can let people, they can either follow us on social or sign up for our newsletter. We'll be announcing some things that are coming up. Um, so yeah, we're really excited for the year ahead. Um, you know, like you said, this is a different type of design book. And when we first pitched a design book to our uh, publisher that had a lot of words in it, they were definitely like, wait a minute, I don't know if we can do this. And, you know, it was, it was definitely us challenging them and challenging ourselves to do something that was different. Um, but what's really, what we're excited about is just, just the feedback like you've provided that people have read the book that they've been inspired by it, that they love the interiors, but that they're also diving into the history and they're learning and they're, you know, seeing things in a different light. And for us to be able to create something that does that, we're really proud and happy and also excited over the next year to, to let more people know about it um, and, and hopefully do some talks about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see why we needed so many words. So uh, we're looking forward to doing, you know, some events will be, you know, popping up, moving around. And, you know, for Chic, we always have new things that uh, we have somewhere in the pipeline that we're getting ready to do. But uh, the book is going to be our focus for a while. Um, and the magazine, we always enjoy being able to do that. Uh, our 10th issue is out now and we, we discussed the book in that and a couple of other things we've been working on uh, over the course of 2022. So, yeah, so that's a lot to look forward to. We hope to do some some virtual events, some virtual conversations with people who we can dive into some of the the individual issues that are included in the book with a little bit more depth with people who know more about them than we do. And, uh, yeah, just try to, to make that an opportunity for an interesting conversation for everybody. Well, we would love to be a support in any way we can. So please, uh, I will sign up for the newsletter and do all that, but uh, we'd be happy to promote your events as, as we know about them. We'd also love to extend you an open invitation if you ever want to be on the podcast and take over the mic. You can interview anybody you like. And uh, I will also say that we do an annual retreat every year in April of 2023. We're going to Charleston. So if you are coming with Business of Design on the retreat in April of 2023, you will receive a copy of Afro Chic because we're going to make that purchase on your behalf. I think it's an important book and I want everybody oh, to have thank one. Thank you so much. Thank That's you. so generous and wonderful of you. Thank you so much. So good. When does the book drop? It drops tomorrow, tomorrow no, oh. November 15th. 
15th. So we will, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because I know when we did our first book, um, I just remember it being like really frenzied. I think one of us was like sick with something, but we were like eat drinking, you know, almost drinking chicken noodle soups and trying to get ourselves together and, you know, uh, just trying to get through events. And um, I don't know, people do compare having books to having children. We don't have children, but it does feel like the second one is easier. Like we're just kind of like, yeah. Like, it's all like, it's all going to be fine. We're going to relax at home and, uh, you know, just kind of enjoy a quiet day. And we'll do a little social media just to let folks know it's out there. Uh, but uh, this is definitely the most relaxed we've been at the drop of anything. But it's actually kind of nice. And that feels good because yeah. it's like, we did it. And now it's really for everyone to be able to enjoy it. Yeah. And when we thank you because uh, the the conversations we've had about the book uh, prior to its release, the some of the attention has gotten is really kind of taking the burden off of us. Because, you know, it's how you do something like this. You go, OK, well, when it's out there, what are people going to think? What are they going to say? Are they going to see it the way that we want them to see or the, the things that we're hoping will come across will come across? So we're really uh, we're excited. We're excited about uh being two-time authors now. <laughs> I know. Exciting. And everybody follow them on Instagram, Afro Chic, um, and we'll put the links to everything in the show notes. This is going to be beautiful on your coffee table, people. So it's a great gift to buy pre-holiday. So really think about supporting this important work. And you guys have been wonderful. We end every episode with something called design intervention. And Brian, you kind of touched on what you guys were going to say as your design intervention about diversity. Absolutely. I, I think we always want people to understand that design belongs to all of us. You know, every culture in the world has design and that it's an amazing and beautiful tapestry that we need to, as an industry, be more invested in. Um, if we're only looking at design from a Eurocentric perspective, then we're missing so much. Um, and sometimes I feel like even Europe is missing so much because we're, we're almost like it with these blinders on. Um, so it's up to us as folks in the design industry to start talking about design in a, a much wider, more inclusive way. Um, I think designers, all the designers I've we've ever loved and admired and known, including ourselves, are curious people that actually really do love culture because you can go to a souk in Morocco or visit Italy or, you know, all these different places and you find things that are so different and interesting and that have so much history to them. So, you know, design should be about all of us and all of these amazing cultures around the globe. And so uh, we hope that that's the, the opening that this book helps in terms of seeing African-American culture, but that that gaze becomes wider and wider. Yeah. And we think the one thing that can actually may start to make it a little bit easier is just the way that we talk about it. So rather than thinking about it as the work of diversity, um, realizing that, as we said before, design is diverse by nature because the world is diverse by nature. And so the work goes into excluding rather than including. So all we actually have to do is take it a little easy, you know, get a little lazier about that work, not work quite so hard to, to, to block everything else out and to focus on just this and let design be the natural, broad, universal, wonderful thing that it is. Well, I can't thank you enough and continued success. Hopefully we'd love to have you back on the podcast whenever and uh, looking forward to uh, having our retreat attendees open those beautiful books for themselves. 
Uh, well, we thank you so much. Thank you for getting the book for your retreat. And um, that that is really, that's just really fantastic. We, we can't thank you enough for that. Thanks for listening and being a part of the Business of Design community. You're supporting the BOD mission to improve the industry one design business at a time. It's time for you to have the business you've always dreamed of. If you're ready to dramatically improve your business and transform your life, head to businessofdesign.com now and become a member. What are you waiting for?